This morning we are starting a new series, and the series is entitled Trained to Discipline. And we will take the next several weeks, it will lead us into the fall, as we begin to understand, or that's not discipline, that's a disciple, sorry. I can't read my own writing. And I, the sad thing is, I knew that I was going to do that. And yesterday I said, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. There I did it. So, train to disciple, not discipline. Uh, well, that's another talk for another day. <laughs> that won't take a whole series. We can do that in a shorter time. Uh, train to disciple. Now, this is our one objective as a church, is to disciple. Not only is it the one objective of the church, it is your one objective as a believer in Jesus Christ. The one thing you're here to do. Now, there's many facets of it, but it's the one thing you're here to do. And so we're going to take the next several weeks, and I will also let you know that this coincides with our study in Genesis. There's many things that will overlap, but the study in Genesis is the emphasis of one point of discipleship, and that is sharing the gospel message. The point that I want us to understand now is that we should be about sharing the gospel message. We should be about sharing uh, and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. There's two aspects to it, and both of those are the emphasis of our church and the emphasis of us as individuals. We begin this new study this morning, when, uh, and when we finish, it will help establish in our hearts a ready defense for our faith. And that is also why it ties in with our Genesis study. I told uh, the Genesis group last night, by the time you are done, you will be able to defend your faith against even the most ardent of atheists. It is an intense study on Sunday evening, and I encourage you to be there. But I want to ask you a question, actually several of them. How do you answer the questions of sin, death, cancer, crime, abortion, homosexual marriage, devastating weather, earthquakes, hunger, disease, cloning, and evolution? How do you answer those questions as a Christian? You see, I believe that it's my job as a pastor to equip you to answer those. But it is also your job as a believer. So where can we gain insights? As a Christian, where do you gain insights to the answers to the questions that you're going to be faced with? How do we help reach out to a world that is bought into our origin as being from some sort of monkey-like creature? And the dinosaurs died out millions of years ago in a meteor impact in an earth or volcanic eruptions or climate change. How do we answer these? How does the Christian defend their faith? That's what we're going to be looking at as we're trained to disciple. And the idea that I want us to focus on is this. And this is why I I ask that Colleen sing that last chorus. No matter the day and age we live in, the church's primary objective still exists. I don't care what the world says. I don't care that they say there's no such thing as absolutes, and they say that absolutely. doesn't matter. There are absolutes, and those are found in the Word of God. Many of them are found in the Word of God. And so, while we recognize that we live in a world that wants to change it, that wants to impact it, that wants to cause us to be different, we understand that no matter the day and age we live in, the church's primary objective still exists. I find it interesting that when we read Scripture, God doesn't say, okay, and for you who live in the year 2000 and later, or for those who lived in the dark ages and later, no, He told the disciples one thing, go. And make disciples. That is our objective. And so we're going to begin by studying this here in a moment. But as we do so, let's go to our Lord in prayer. 
Father, as we come before this passage this morning, or these several passages that we're going to consider, we also recognize that there's a lot of different areas we're going to cover this morning, that eventually we're going to put all the pieces back together. I thank you for our recent study in the letter of 1 John because it provides some of the foundational work that is necessary for us today. But I also pray that as we move into this passage that we are ready to give an answer for the issues that face the people we run into on a daily basis, the issues they're wrestling with. Lord, I praise you because these ancient words are not archaic words. These ancient words are changing me even as I preach this message this morning. Lord, I praise you because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that we would understand that as believers, that we would believe it and that we would apply it. And we give you the glory and the honor for it. This morning, as we come before your word, grant us an understanding of it and help me to preach only that which is glorifying to you and which are indeed your words. We give you the glory and the honor for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning, as a bit of introduction into our new study, we're going to finish out the summer with this. Um, but we have spent much time preparing for the defensive aspects of our faith in the letter of First John. A foundation has been laid. But now we add some offense. In other words, we have something to take out. And it has been said, and often so, that the best defense is a good offense. And that's what we're going to apply to the defense that we have backing us as we have studied in First John. So we prepare for this by first considering the only solid foundation. There are no other foundations that are solid. The only solid foundation. That's where we're going to start. And we're going to begin by considering a worldview. And we further explore that worldview by considering the everlasting word. And you're going to find things interlaced and intertwined as we move through, but you're also going to see some diversity. One of the things that I struggle with the most as a preacher is an introductory message to a series. And that's what we have today. So bear with me as we see some of these things intertwined, but we also see some disconnection. That disconnection I'm going to eventually bring in as we move through, but I want to give you an overview. I want to let you know where we're going so that by the time we're done, you get everything that you can possibly absorb from this series. And finally, we're going to lay out the story of redemption. The story of redemption. And we're going to do that through the help of Answers in Genesis, but I'm also going to add to that some as we look at eight C's. And we're going to see what that means as we get there. Let's begin with a solid foundation. And I want us to recognize our worldview. And I want you to know a couple things. There are only two worldviews. Those who believe in the Word of God as their worldview, and those who do not. Those who do not, uh, there's a broad category over there. And we're going to examine that in a few moments. But John helped us to understand the black and white truth in a gray world. That was one of the amazing things about the letter of 1 John, is it's black or it's white. There's no gray. When it comes to worldviews, it's black or it's white. There's no gray. You can't say that I'm building on the worldview of God's Word when you're supplementing it with all of the things of man's world. Instead of looking through the lens of Scripture, you're looking through the lens of men and you're trying to squeeze Scripture into it. It doesn't work that way. It's either God's Word or it's man's opinions. And those are the only two worldviews. Our worldview should be God-centered, not man-centered in this 
black or white situation. And I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to tell you that to be ready to move through Scripture rather quickly this morning. We're going to view a lot of Scripture and later we're going to add all of the details to it. But our worldview begins here, in the beginning. Imagine that, Genesis 1.1. Our worldview starts here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We now see where we have two worldview ideas. You have God's Word and you have man's opinion. An equation that you're going to hear me say often, and I'm not a math teacher, I don't want to teach math, but uh, this is somewhat of an algebra question, is if we understand our origin and we understand our destination, then we will understand our route. Now, I want you to do something for me. Go home, uh, fire up the old computer, and type in where you would like to go. Say, get on MapQuest or Google Maps, and say, I'm going to start in Goodland, Kansas, and I want to go to, uh, for ease, Colby, Kansas. Guess what it's going to give you? You gave it your origin and your destination, and it's going to give you your route, right? Depending on how we view God's Word and how we view man's opinion, we're going to come up with our origin and our destination, and that's going to determine our route. Let me do this quickly and easily for you. If you believe you came from a monkey, you believe in evolution, then uh, that is your origin. Your destination is annihilation. You will cease to exist at the end of this world. Guess what you're going to act like? A monkey. You're going to act like a monkey. But let me do it the other way. If you believe that you are created by God in a special creation, that you are three parts in one as God is, and you believe that your destination is eternal life with Him in heaven because of Jesus Christ who shed His blood for you to spend eternity with Him in heaven, guess what your route's going to be? You're going to see the importance and you're going to live a godly life. You see how there's only two worldviews? Notice the bridges to this. If you believe in God's Word, you believe in creation, you understand the laws that God has ordained for us for our good. You understand the sanctity of marriage, you understand the standards, and you also understand the meaning of life. Let me equate that with what the world says. And this is why I want you to understand you cannot blend the two. There are no gray areas. If you believe in man's opinion, you believe that you came from goo to you by way of the zoo. You believe in lawlessness because there are no laws in evolution. You believe in homosexual behavior. You believe in pornography or at least you practice it and you move into abortion. You see, what I want you to understand, believer, is this. We attack these issues. We attack abortion. We attack pornography. We attack homosexual behavior. We attack lawlessness and we attack evolution. But what we're missing is man's opinion. We don't attack that. We must learn to understand that this is a battle of worldviews, not a battle of issues. Our worldview should be God-centered, not man-centered. We believe, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the world does not believe it. We believe that Adam and Eve committed the sin that tainted all of creation that we are still perpetuating today, Genesis chapter 3, the world does not it was because of this sin that the last Adam, that is Jesus Christ, had to come as one of us to take our place to pay our debts. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Lord Jesus became a bondservant, taking on flesh to dwell among us. We can understand and explain sin, cancer, death, as a result of the fall of men committed by men. 
Sin and death remind us of our Savior's death and we desire and deserve what we get when we're living in man's opinions. But you see, God didn't desire or deserve death, yet Christ came. He took our place so that when this life was over, so is our suffering. You see the difference in the worldviews? You see, as we begin to look at the solid foundation, this is a practical solid foundation. This is a recognition that it is based solely and completely upon the Word of God. And so we have to consider this. We have to look at the source. 2 Timothy 3.16. Please turn there with me. These are familiar verses. I'm not giving you anything you don't already know. I'm just hopefully putting some pieces together for you. As biblicists, as those who study the Word of God, we should be those who are faithful and diligent to give a ready defense. And as such, we look to the source, and the source is found here in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, in my Bible, I don't leave any notes in my preaching Bible because it confuses me (laughs) while I'm preaching. This is the only book in all of the scriptures that I have nearly all of it underlined. And that's because this is such a vital book to me. It's a personal book to me. But 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 in the scripture there says, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, this is our source. The source of our worldview is not revealed in computer models, some figment of our imagination, or the best advice we sought from a friend. You see, our source comes from the Word of God that promises to change you. Now, I'm going to come back here to 2 Timothy in a moment, but I want you to catch something. The Word of God is inspired to change you and me. Are you going to like it? No, you're not. Not all the time. You see, sometimes it's going to offend us. Sometimes it's moving us from man's opinion into God's Word. And as we move into that, we get hurt. But it is... this. Now I can move into discipline. It is the same thing. You see, if we allow our children to live the way they want to live, they're going to live as in man's world, and they're going to live like monkeys. But if we train them to observe God's Word, we train them by hurting them to a point. We don't want to hurt them permanently, but we want them to understand the truth. And we know that in order to understand the truth, it's going to cost something. And that's going to hurt a little to save great, tremendous hurt in the end. So we recognize this as our source. I want you to turn over a couple books real quickly to 2 Peter 1.21. Keep your fingers here in 2 Timothy, but turn over to 2 Peter 1.21. And again, this is nothing new. We've looked at this verse in the past. We understand it. 2 Peter 1.21. And the scripture there says at the end of chapter 1, letter of 2 Peter, says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, our source is the Word of God. Our source is going to hurt us a little bit to save us great hurt in the end. When you pick up and study the Bible, guess what? You're not picking up Shakespeare. You're not picking up this week's bestseller. You're picking up 
the very Word of God. Now, I want this to soak into your thought and your mind. You are picking up the very Word of God, written down for your benefit. One of the amazing things, and I'm going to repeat it often through the Genesis study as well as through this study, is God established a special creation, and then He gave us an instruction book to use it. You know, parents say that uh, raising children doesn't come with uh, instruction books, or children don't come with instructions. Yeah, they do. It is found right here. Are you going to have to invest some study into it? Yeah. It's not like a modern instruction book where half of it's written in Spanish, the other half's written in French, and no English. It's all written for us to understand. It's in your language, and you can understand it. You see, the source is not a book. And I want you to understand that. The source is not a book. It's not Shakespeare. It's not this week's bestseller. The source is the Lord Himself. That's the source. You want to understand the solid foundation, you will understand the source. And when we understand the source, we recognize that it is our Creator God. The truth deeply planted in our hearts form the basis of the way we view Scripture and therefore the way that we view the world around us. You and I should see the world totally different than those who live on the outside. You and I should look at creation and say, what a marvelous Creator we have. You and I should look at sin and death and say, what a terrible result that sin has caused on this planet and in all of creation. You and I should look at cancer and say, you know what, it is by God's mercy that one day we will be free from it. You and I should look at the death of a child and say, you know what, our God is great and He is mighty, but sin is devastating. And we should learn to hate sin. Loving those that the Lord loved and hating what He hated. Truth planted deep in our hearts forms the basis of the way we view Scripture and therefore the way that we view the world around us. Don't dare, don't dare try to smash man's opinions into the Word of God because all you've done is you've created another man's opinion. They're not. They cannot coexist. But let's continue on. We're going to build on this. This is all just starting. Let's continue on. I want you to turn to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 40. As we look at His eternal Word, you see this everlasting Word is eternal. In the middle of Isaiah's message on the greatness of our God, he includes a thought concerning the Word of God. And I love the way that Isaiah does this. He's talking about the greatness of God, that by His breath the flowers fade and they wilt away. By His power... Everything is spoken into existence. And the glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh is going to see it. All of this found in Isaiah chapter 40. And he says this, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God has always been and will forever remain powerful, never fading That means that there is no time when it is not in its prime. There is no time when it is not or uh, anything less than the Word of God. 
There is no time when the Word of God is not doing what it was set out to do. What what God, when He used holy men of old, intended for it to do, there is no time when it ceases to do it. So I want you to understand this. The world who says, well, the Bible is irrelevant, it is archaic, I want you to remember that the Word of God never fades. You see how we view it differently? Guess what they're doing, by the way. Guess what the world does when they say, oh, the Word of God doesn't mean anything. You can add millions of years into the creation story. You can do all of this stuff. You could take passages out of Scripture. You know what they're doing? They're attacking your foundation. I don't know about you, but that offends me. And it offends me because we're not attacking theirs. Because instead of shooting at their foundation, we're shooting at the balloons of homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, cloning, whatever happens to be. And we're missing the point. We should be addressing those issues, but we should also be addressing the sin issue that is already corrupting their foundation. All we have to do is pick apart what's already going on. And yet we let them shoot at our foundation without defending it. So I want to ask you a question. This means God's eternal word has always been and will forever be powerful, never fading. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? What about Hebrews? This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I taught through Hebrews last winter. I wanted to stay on this verse a long, long, long time, but I didn't. I wanted to. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to ask you, does that sound like this is archaic? I tell you what, I would rather have a surgeon with a sharp knife than a dull one. And if I'm going to be worked on, I would rather have the living and active sharper sharper than a two-edged sword doing the work than man's opinion. Man's opinion is a blunt object. I don't think I want them taking out my heart and doing heart transplant with a blunt object. Is it going to hurt to have surgery? Yes, it is. I would rather do it with a sharp instrument than a blunt object. Let's let the Word of God do what it was intended to do. The Word of God is living. It is active. It is sharp. It is more concerned about your eternal destination than our fragile, sinful opinions. And I want us to understand that. The world is concerned about your fragile, sinful opinions. And guess what? Eternity will suffer for it. Your eternity will suffer for it. The Word of God is willing to to cut out even the intentions of the heart. It is willing to to cut and divide the joints from the marrow to do the hard work. So that while it causes a little pain today, our eternity, our destination, is wonderful beyond our imagination. I want you to look quickly back to 2 Timothy 3.16 as we look at the value of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 again, we've already read it, uh, so because of time I don't want to, to read it again. I want you to read it again, but I can't take the time now. The Word of God is not a regular book. 
Its words are always and forever true. It changes and it molds us. It will offend us. It will rub off our rough edges. It will challenge and craft our hearts. Notice why the scripture is profitable there in verse 16. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and correction, and training. Are any of those things easy? When was the last time you sat in a college course and said, Yep, I love this training. It's easy. When was the last time, teenagers, you took homework home and said, I love this homework. It's not easy. It is profitable, though. Look down at verse 17 so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice that it did not say, as our college courses, this is only good for computer engineering. This is only good for the first six years of Christianity. No, it is profitable. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every one of them. If your worldview is based on the Word of God and you allow the Word of God to correct, to train, reprove, and train in righteousness, you will be equipped to reach the lost world around you, including the most ardent of atheists. By the way, we talked about that last week. There's no such thing as a true atheist anyway. They all know that God exists because God wrote it on their hearts. You see, you will have the necessary answers to life's greatest questions. No matter the generation you live in, it will take study, it will take hardship, and it will take determination. It may mean that you get offended, but praise God that God gave us a word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I want to continue on now. I told you I was going to be kind of moving through. I want to tell you about the story of redemption. And in order to tell you about the story of redemption, I want to tell you about the eight C's. Now, Answers in Genesis has seven of them. I added one, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. Um, I added one, but I want you to see what they do. We're going to run through these briefly and quickly because over the next several weeks, we're going to be examining these together. So let me run them down for you. Genesis chapter 1, guess who created? God created the heavens and the earth. And we're studying that in our other uh, study. And this is important uh, in a worldview because if you know your origin, or, origin and your destination, that will determine your route. You won't act like a monkey if you know that you were created by God. And you won't act like a monkey if you know that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. But you will act like a monkey if you think you came from goo. And so we recognize creation. Genesis chapter 3, God's perfect creation was corrupted, not by God, but by men. Adam and Eve sinned, death entered into the world, and the whole of creation is tainted. And and this starts the process of decay and death. Guess why we die today? Because right there, man corrupted God's perfect creation. Why is there cancer today? Because, God, because man corrupted God's perfect creation. We also move on then to sin. Uh, this catastrophe begins to spread so bad that God says, you know what, I'm going to bring a catastrophe. And he brings a catastrophe called the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And the spread of sin is so great that only eight people are spared to judgment. The ark uh, points us to Christ and our true salvation. There is only one door. And briefly, you don't have to turn here with me, but I'm going to turn here. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 
and 27, notice what Jesus says. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. The scripture says this, Jesus is teaching, and it ha- and as he's saying it, he says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, and they were drinking, and they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And then he says, And the same as happening on the days of Lot. And so as we recognize, as we see what catastrophe is, we recognize that God said it was happening as it will be in the day of the Son of Man. And I want you to understand this, your worldview is going to matter. Because all of the world is living in a way that they said, God doesn't matter. What do you mean? It's going to rain? It's never rained before. What are you doing, Noah? We've never seen enough water to make a boat that will float like that. And they see all the animals. What are you doing? What kind of what kind of magic are you incorporating here, Noah? As you bring all these animals on, what are you trying to prove instead of seeing who God was? You see, their worldview had tainted them. And I want you to know this, not because it's encouraging, but because it's discouraging, and I want to protect you from it. Guess what? The world's going to have a worldview just like they did then. And they're going to mock you for your faith. They're going to despise you for your faith. But there is coming a day when this earth will again be destroyed. Not with flood of water, but of fire. Catastrophe. We move from God's perfect creation. Corruption is so tainted the earth, we move to catastrophe. They get off the ark, and guess what? Genesis tells us about the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel reminds us in Genesis chapter 11 of the confusion. Not long after leaving the ark, the people began to repopulate. And soon, instead of obeying God and listening to God, they said, no, we know better than God. Let's remain in one place. Let's build us a tower. And God brings language to confuse their words and cause them to obey His commands to fill the earth. You see, God said, no, you're going to obey me. And you're going to fill the earth. There's some amazing things when we get to this point that we're going to study. Also, we all. Uh, this is where I'm going to add one right here. Uh, another C is covenant. Genesis chapter 12. God pulls out a special people and He begins a special work in them. And that work is not yet complete, by the way. Part of it is you and I are blessed. We're part of all of the other nations. We're blessed because of the covenant God made with Abraham. And so we praise the Lord for that. Part of that blessing is Luke chapter 2. Jesus comes as our Savior. Born of a baby. To die as a perfect Lamb of God on the cross. And of course, that leads us to John chapter 19, the perfect Lamb of God dying in our place on the cross. And then, I, because I want you to understand your origin and your destination, look at the final C, consummation. I can't wait for this to happen in reality, but I can't wait for us to get here as well in our study. You see, this is Revelations chapter 21. There is coming a day when the fullness of our eternal life will be experienced. Remember what I said in 1 John? I said in 1 John that if you've come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, you are already enjoying the benefits of everlasting life right now. Do you see all of the benefits? No, there's more to come. You know when they're going to come? The final C, consummation. All the benefits are going to come that day. But I briefly want to remind you of the story of salvation as well. You see, uh, all of this leads us to understand that Christ is the watershed of the entire Word of God. 
Every and the entire history of the world, everything from creation to sin to the flood to the scattering of the people to the covenant, all of it leads to Christ and the free gift of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. This was the message that turned the world on fire in Acts chapter 2. And it is the same message that is transforming countries around the world today. I want you to understand this. Because I've been asked this a lot. Why isn't revival here today? Why aren't we experiencing revival in this country? Revival is here, by the way. It's in countries like China, and North Korea, and Iran. You know, man, those are terrible countries. In fact, they've been called the axis of evil. Some of them. As we think about that. I want to ask you, why is there revival in those lands? Because the people there who know Jesus Christ as Savior are passionate about His Word. They're on fire for the Word of God. They're on fire for the Lord. That too could be here if God's people would become on fire for Him. But all of that to lead to this one objective. This one objective, and I want you to turn here with me, Matthew chapter 28. This is the scripture that we started out with. And again, it's scripture we know. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. And I recognize that. And I'm doing it to lay the foundation for which I can add on. We usually hear a missionary share this verse as to the motivation behind their pulling up stakes here and moving to a jungle someplace halfway around the world. But listen carefully. As I read Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to you again. Listen carefully. Jesus is speaking. And he says, Go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We send out missionaries as part of the fulfillment of this one objective that was left for you and I. But I want to ask you a question. When was the last time that the United States had all of the disciples it needed? Anybody know? Never. Never. Is our job done in the United States? I want you to understand something. There are more missionaries coming from South Korea to the United States than we are sending out. Do you know that? More missionaries are being sent from South Korea, and many of them are coming to the United States, per capita larger than we are sending out missionaries today. We used to be the missionary sending country in the world. And now we're falling to third or fourth. Because we're not doing this at home. So I want to move through it quickly. Jesus tells his disciples, go make more disciples. And there are two sides to this. First, share the gospel convincingly. That's what we're preparing to do on Sunday evenings. And allow the Spirit to do the saving. Are you responsible for the saving? No, the Spirit's got to do that work. You are responsible for the telling and telling it convincingly. Secondly, when a baby Christian is born, you, you take the reins. You help them grow up. Maybe there's a Christian who needs to be built up, who's known Christ for a long time. They need to be built up in Christ. You take the reins and you build them up. If God has laid that burden on your heart, don't refuse it. I want you to know that right now, the elders are working on how this is going to happen in every single one of the ministries in our church. We are revamping ministries, and you're going to say, but I don't like my ministry where it is. Well, I'm going to tell you it's going to be revamped because we're not doing this very well. I shared statistics, um, my own personal statistics that I've gathered in the board meeting last week or this past week, 
and they are startling. And so we are redoing many ministries to come alongside this truth. Because we need to help. In the church, much is made of music styles. Much is made of methods. Much is made of programs and so forth. But let me ask you, no matter where you're at in those ministries, are you actively discipling somebody in this body? You should be. Are you then actively discipling somebody who's not yet part of the body of Christ? You should be. I had, a, I'm not going to give you any more details than, than what I'm going to give you right now. There was a situation already this morning where somebody was discipling somebody else, leading them to Christ. They didn't, they're not yet there, but they're almost there. That's exciting stuff, folks. And we should be a part of that. Every day that should be happening. Jesus tells His disciples how to make disciples. He patterned His ministry to make disciples. He tells them here that it starts with sharing your faith and it follows with teaching them the Word of God. And we already understand 2 Timothy 3.16. If you share the Word of God, guess what? It's not going to come back void. Because it's profitable. Because it is useful for the training of the men of God to be adequately equipped for every good work. Just as introduction today, we have seen the foundation to answer the tough questions of our faith. One object, our main objective is to make disciples no matter the ways of the world. I don't care what the world says. They're not your standard anyway. Why are you listening to them? Why are we listening to them? This is accomplished by never, by the never fading word of God made real and active in your life and in mine. You see, our worldview comes from it. That's the way we look at the world around us. And only when we depart from it are we defeated. The youth group knows this man. This man is William Tyndale. I'm going to let you know a little bit about William Tyndale. And the youth group could probably share the events of this man's life. William Tyndale left the Church of England, and he saw a great need for the Bible to be translated into the language of the common person. Before William Tyndale, you wouldn't have had a Bible in English. You may have had a copy of the Word of God in Latin, the Latin Vulgate was, Jerome's Latin Vulgate was abundant among the clergy, but not the common people. William Tyndale was in studies to become, he was at Oxford, and he was in studies to become part of the clergy. He leaves Oxford, and he goes to a conservative university, Cambridge, and he begins this work. But, as he sees a great need for the Bible to be translated into the language of the common folks, and that was in English, by the way, that's not some weird language, that was in English, the church branded him a heretic. They pursued his capture. Fleeing from England, he goes to Germany and later into Belgium. And in Germany, Tyndale finished his work of translating the scriptures into English and was betrayed by a friend who came to visit him, who turned him over to authorities. William Tyndale was executed by strangulation. And the way they would do that is they would put them on a platform. They would build a fire box around them or a fire pit around them. They would tie him to the stake, and through the stake would be a rope that would strangle his neck. The executioner would pull on the pole, strangling him. William Tyndale, as he died, 
cried at the stake with fervent zeal and a loud voice, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And he was strangled to death. This miracle God did less than a year later. In August of 1537, King Harry VIII gave his authorization to the Bible generally known as Matthew's Bible, which was, by the way, Tyndale's Bible. Much of Tyndale's Bible was in that. He decreed that it should be freely sold and read within his realm. One year later. Tyndale's great goal was realized, and the revival of the Reformation soon followed. The word you hold in your hands is what provided the answers to life's greatest questions when it was written. The word you hold in your hands provides the answers to life's greatest questions the day in which we speak. The word which you hold in your hands provided answers to life's greatest questions in Tyndale's day because it is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. If we study, apply, and think biblically, we have the answers right here. All of this is introduction for the next at least 10 weeks. We have a lot to study and a lot to apply. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you now, I praise you for your word, that it is living and active. We recognize that this ought to transform our foundation, and that is that our foundation should be based on the word of God. We let all of the other noise from the world come in, all of the other discussion, all of the other talking from man's opinions. I pray that we would see those things as what they are, worthless truly, and in light of eternity of no consequence other than devastation. Lord, as we consider your word, we also consider the saints that you have brought along the way, like William Tyndale, who shared their faith, who gave their lives for the word of God that we hold in our hands. I pray that we would recognize the power of it, that it is indeed living and active. And I give you the glory and the honor for it now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.